Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Thank you for joining us. Today on the podcast, our guest is a writer, producer, and director whose long list of credits includes Boy Meets World, Girl Meets World, Spy School, and Ghost Rider, now on Apple TV, just to name a few. Welcome, Mr. Mark Blutman. Thanks for coming on, Mark. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know you're leaving town tomorrow for three months, so we'll just jump yeah. into it, but I appreciate you taking the time. <laughs> of course. Uh, where are you headed for three months? To Connecticut, where uh, I hear they have this thing called winter. Yes. And uh, so I went into a bottom drawer where I keep old uh, winter clothes. And all I found, I had gloves and I was all excited. I'm like, yay, I've got gloves. And then I realized they were those like uh, no fingerless, like they had, they <laughs> like, there were no fingers on right. them. So I'm like, what? what is this? I mean, this is something that they used to wear like in Oliver Twist. And right. Stuff, something the Artful Dodger would wear. Sure. Uh, so I, I need gloves. So uh, hopefully we will uh, we'll finish up before uh, Dillard's closes or, or Macy's or whatever. There's a cheap plug for no reason. Right. Otherwise, I'll be responsible for you getting frostbit fingers. <laughs> Which is <laughs> Which yeah, I don't not, want. A, not a good thing. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm I'm heading out there, and uh, I'm excited. So no, that's um, great. My my wife, who's from the East Coast, that says that's one thing she definitely misses about living in LA is the seasons, which we don't really have. You, you know, it, here's the truth. I I've been out here for about 35 years, so I've been out here a long time. But I did, I, I talk all like wimpy, like oh no, I got to go back <laughs> east winter. I I grew up in Montreal. Oh, I wow. know this. I used to, so I know about. I played hockey. I was thrown on a sheet of ice at like two years old because that's what parents did. They just right. would throw little Canadian babies on the ice, and the ones that were able to get upright, parents would get all excited and go, "Ooh, I can, I can pimp him out to like hockey leagues, and maybe he'll be, you know, like the the next Gretzky." Which uh, I came close to being. I actually, uh, I played against Gretzky when I was wow. 10 years old, which is a true story. I, I'm reminded of it because uh, there were one of those things on Twitter the other day where somebody said, write something about yourself that's completely true, but sounds like it could be a lie. Right. And so I said, when I was 10 years old, Wayne Gretzky scored 11 goals on me. Which is true. <laughs> that's and, amazing. Uh, Exactly. And it was, you know, that moment where when the 11th, you know, goal went past me and the red light went off like goal, I went, I better figure something out, figure something else to do for a living because <laughs> it ain't going to be this. Him, he's good. He's going to be okay. And, uh, you know, but it was it's one of those little, you know, feathers in your cap where I, all these years later, I like telling that story because it's kind of cool. No, I mean, that's that's absolutely amazing uh and and if it makes you feel any better if if he ended up being a plumber 11 goals on you is like yeah that's you i mean but he scored so many goals on so many great goalies that you're thinking yeah nothing to be ashamed I mean, of, so. exactly there's a, a whole long line of goalies in the hall of fame he scored on right exactly and then goalies who goalies who went on to become tv and film writers right i'm, exactly. I'm alone in that line I'm, right it's just me <laughs> That's I'm very good. comfortable in saying there's nobody else in LA writing TV that also had Gretzky pump 11 by them. Yeah, I, I, I that's truly amazing. I love that story. <laughs> um, I should put it on my resume or something. I, I would. I, that'd be my Twitter bio. Yeah. It would yeah. be right there. That's put it true. on your business card. That's, you know, I, let me tell you, do you mind a, no, a, a no. quick 
kind of addendum to the Gretzky story? Yeah, please. Since we're, you know, talking about. So, you know, we look at athletes, you know, like Gretzky and in basketball, Michael Jordan, and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in baseball, you know, for, I mean, Clint Kershaw, dominant athlete. There's, all, there's something that makes these guys so special. Right. And here's what I, here's, here's, here's the story. So years ago, I'm hanging out uh, at a Starbucks with a, a bunch of friends and uh, at the table was a dude I didn't know. My friend says, Hey, Hey Mark, uh, here's uh, an ex hockey player. Maybe you've heard of him, Russ Portnall. Mm-hmm. And I said, Oh sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he played for like the Kings and the Canadians and, him and his brother, Jeff, they're these brothers from Vancouver and both had great hockey careers. And so we're just talking, talking, talking. And then he gets up. He goes, guys, I got to leave. I'm playing around a golf with Gretzky. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm laughing. He goes, why are you laughing? I go, well, funny enough, when I was like 10 years old, there was a tournament in Oshawa, Ontario. Wayne was playing from his, for his hometown, Brantford. And he scored uh, like 11 goals on me. We were like 10 years old. And, and Cornell goes, oh, cool, you know. Anyway, the next day, we're hanging out at our Starbucks there. And Cornell shows up, sits down. He looks at me and he goes, blue uniforms with gold trim. Ah, uh, you remember. And I went, are you kidding me? He goes, Gretzky, remember the color of your uniforms. Uh. And that... That, you know, I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. And, but these athletes, these ones that are so special, they're just wired completely, completely different. And that's what makes them so great and so special. I mean, it's, I think it's a pretty cool story. Yeah. Again, you have to put that on your, uh, your business. Like the, the front of your business card can be the information and the back could just be a picture of Gretzky. He scored 11 goals on here or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> that'd be a, that'd and me be just lying on the ice in tears. <laughs> Um, so speaking of your transition from hockey goalie to writer, uh, how did you first discover your talent for writing? Did you write about how this event affected your life? I mean, how did you, uh, <laughs> I certainly carried the pain. For many years. <laughs> um, but by the way, if that was the worst thing from my childhood, I did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that, that literally was the most traumatic thing from my childhood. <laughs> So my transition was, uh, was, it was kind of interesting. So, you know, grew up in Montreal, Canada and, uh, thought I was going to be a pro hockey player. And, you know, there were a lot of guys that I played with for many, many years that ended up in the NHL, Mm -hmm. uh, Denny Savard, Raymond Bork, um, Bork. and just a bunch of others. And, and, and I ripped my knee up when I was like 16, 17 years old, I ripped my knee up and I had talked to a couple of schools about scholarships, uh, university of Vermont, uh, Middlebury college and Bowling green. And, and, and then I ripped the knee up and, and mm. back then the, the, you know, now it's so easy to fix a, a torn ligament or whatever. Back then it wasn't the same. And the amount of rehab needed, I just wasn't dedicated enough. And I just never got back to playing at the level I used to. And then my initial transition into show business was 
a uh, buddy of mine, we loved Saturday Night Live. We used to watch Saturday Night Live all the time. I'd go over to his house 11.30. Actually, 11.35 is when it came on, to be exact. And we would watch. And this is back in the early days. Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, John Belushi, Bill Murray, Gilda Radner, Jane Curtin. Um, you know, just uh, amazing, amazing cast. And we started writing sketches. Hmm. Me and him. We were just like, no ambition to be in showbiz. We just started writing these sketches and we're like 17, 18 years old. And we sent them in to New York. We mailed them into the office, to Lauren Michaels' office. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, one day, an afternoon, I'm at home after school. My buddy calls me. He says, you're not going to believe this. Lauren Michaels' office called. Wow. They loved the material. They want us to come to New York for an interview. So, so this is in the, you know, 77, roughly 1977, mm-hmm. where these kids, teenagers, we go to New York and our meeting is with Al Franken and Tom Davis, who were the head writers back then. Wow. And we walk in and they look up and they go, you guys are kids. <laughs> and we go, yeah. And... You said, though, you told our assistant, Lauren's assistant, who called and said, have you written professionally before? You said, yes. You said you wrote for SCTV. And I said, look, I said, if we said no, we were 17-year-old kids (laughs) who have never done anything professionally, were you going to fly us here? Absolutely not. Well, there you go. We're, we're here now. Right. I, mean, I think it's more unprofessional of you guys to actually have us here. Right. And right. they were like, yeah, you have a point there. Anyway, we sat, we talked for like a half hour. They talked about our material and then we knew they weren't going to hire us. And they basically said, you know, keep writing, keep writing. And, uh, we did, but we also, uh, you know, we're, remained huge fans, watched the show. And every now and then there'd be a sketch on that I kind of could tell was maybe loosely inspired by something we submitted. So I knew that, you know, we were good and funny writers. And then a comedy club opened up in Montreal called Stitches. And uh, me and my buddy took some of the, you know, sketches and we would perform them. And uh, then I started, he went to, you know, university, my buddy, to be an accountant like his dad. And I went, no, I love this. I love performing. And so I developed a stand-up act, which, uh, interestingly enough, was, uh, I was a lifelong wrestling fan. I loved professional wrestling as a kid. Right, me too. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I used to go to all the matches. My grandfather would take me and... You know, back in the day, it was Mad Dog Vachon and Andre the Giant, and, mm-hmm. you know, all these, you know, huge, huge characters. And I loved it. And so I created a wrestling character to do stand up. So I created a character called Crusher Comic. <laughs> and Crusher Comic wore a mask and tights and he had all the Ric Flair robes and all that. And I would come out through the crowd to Eye of the Tiger. And I would pound on people from the audience and pick somebody up unplanned. They didn't know it was happening. I would airplane spin them, throw them down on the stage. They would fall. 
and uh, I would do my act. And it became, you know, pretty big in, uh, in that I was playing clubs all over the States and selling out. And I was written up on the cover of Wrestling World magazine and inside wrestling as this phenomenon, this ex-wrestler turned comedian. Of course, I was never really an ex-wrestler, and every now and then there'd be some drunk customer in the crowd at the comedy club that would want to challenge me, <laughs> thinking I really was. Right. And I'm just this little scrawny Jewish kid from Canada going, no, this is make-believe, and they didn't <laughs> care. So I, I get I get into a couple of fights and stuff, like just like literally, you know, at the end of a night, just some wasted person. I went... I can't do this anymore, you know? And by this time I had moved to LA in the early, early eighties. I was, you know, a young kid in LA living in the Valley, doing the crusher comic all over, you know, the country and then coming back. And then without the mask and all the get up, I was an actor and I did, uh, you know, I went out on commercial auditions. I was the Orkin man. I was, um, uh, I did, uh, I starred in a movie called meatball three with Patrick Dempsey. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on all my children. I was getting a lot of work as an actor and I went, okay, this, this is good. This is good. I've got a career and I was really happy here in LA. And then I went to see the premiere of meatballs three with my brother and we're watching the movie and I'm on for, but you know, I, I was one of the leads of the movie. I'm in the whole thing, but I'm watching. And after about 10 minutes, I turned to my brother and I go, how bad am I? He goes, he goes, you're pretty bad. Oh, goodness. And I got up and I remember I was such a doofus because I thought, you know, Bill Murray started Meatballs 1. Yeah. Then there was a bad Meatballs 2, but I thought Meatballs 3 would be the one. And I thought I was going to be a big comedy star like Bill Murray or Robin Williams are all my idols. And here I am at this premiere and I'm dressed up. In fact, it's on my Instagram, this picture. I just reposted it the other day. I'm in a black tuxedo with a yellow cummerbund, a yellow bow tie, yellow converse, thinking this, you know, this is Hollywood. And I'm going to, and I watched the movie. I just went and I got up and I went into the lobby and I just stayed there for the rest of the movie. And I knew in my head going, as much as I love this, I'm not, I'm not great. Like I'm okay. I'm, uh, I'm good enough to get cast. But I, don't, I think at some point someone is going to realize what I already know that I'm not a great actor. I understand acting. Mm-hmm. And one of the things now that I pride myself on Kevin is, is working with so many young actors. I'm really, really good at working with a young actor and elevating them and making them feel comfortable and turning them into really accomplished actors. But for myself, I wasn't that good and I needed to do something else. And uh, I had this idea, uh, literally an idea for a movie came to me in a dream. Like literally, I'm, I'm about 30 years old, 29, 30 years old. And knowing I don't want to do the stand-up anymore and I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to go through, certainly don't want to go through life, you know, wearing a wrestling mask yelling, shut up at an audience. <laughs> Where right. are you from? What's your name? What do you do for a living? Shut up. I'm like, I don't want to do that. Right. Like I knew at some point. And so anyway, I wake up in the middle of the night with this idea. It just like hit me. It was based on a, it was a fantasy movie uh, called 10 wishes based on uh, loosely based on my relationship with my grandfather, who was like my best friend and really close. And he passed away when I was like 16 hmm. and, um, uh, 
I called a buddy of mine who was uh, acting in a movie. He was on location uh, doing a film called Little Monsters with Fred Savage. Mm, yeah. Um, Howie Mandel. And so, you know, I knew Howie from Canada and I call Howie up on a phone because there were landlines back then. Sure. And I say, I say, Howie, you got to listen to the story. And I tell him the story and he goes, oh my gosh. He goes, that's great. Let me call you back. And then about a half hour later, the phone rings. It's Howie. And he puts on the two producers that were producing his film, Little Monsters. And he says, Mark, tell Andy and Jeff your story. And I tell him the story. And uh, the short of it is, I mean, the listeners are going to wonder what the heck the story is. Uh, so it was a movie called Ten Wishes. Remember when you were a kid, you would always make these wishes on your birthday. And wishes were something maybe you hoped for, but you didn't really expect. Right. And the concept of the movie was, what if all the wishes you made as a kid started to come true as an adult? Oh, wow. So in the movie, we had this, you know, 30-year-old character named Chaz, kind of like, a, you know, a younger Tom Hanks, kind of, you know, goofy, fun, practical joker, never taking life too seriously. He's got a fiancé who's like, I want to get married already. And I want you to grow up. I want you to take life seriously. And so he figures, okay, I'm going to get my stuff together. I'm going to propose to her. And so he takes her away to the Caribbean and they're scuba diving underwater. It's a beautiful scene. And there's a sunken treasure chest at the bottom and he motions to her. There's an old rusty handle and he motions to his girlfriend, his fiance to crank that handle. And she does, and it pops open. And a bunch of balloons come out with an engagement ring. And he puts the ring on her finger. So beautiful, light, romantic scene underwater. Meanwhile, up top, there's a party yacht and a bunch of people drinking and dancing. And there's a little toddler strapped into a car seat. And the toddler gets out and ends up crawling along the side of the boat. And the boat hits a wave and the baby falls in. Mm. And so the Tom Hanks character that, you know, we wrote it for Tom, but in my mind, but anyway, the character was named Chaz. Chaz sees, you know, little feet and swims up and basically saves this baby's life. And then we cut to the boat and he hands the baby back to the mother. And the mother's this weird gypsy character. And she goes, I hope everything you ever wish for in your life comes true for you. And that's kind of the setup. Mm. And then we go back to his real world and you know, he's at work and his boss is like, Chaz, time to get serious. You have so much promise. We see you as a future partner and uh, you just got to stop goofing around. Stop it. Yes, sir. I got it. I hear you. And that's, I, I got engaged and I'm determined to be serious and that the, the old Chaz no more. And they go to his office. He opens the office door and it's filled with M&Ms, wall to wall, floor to ceiling. M&Ms come pouring out. <laughs> Boss is like, really? You're going to get your stuff together? Really? And he's like, I don't know who did this. It must have been Ned down the hall. He's always playing jokes on me. And then, you know, he goes home that night. And strangely enough, there's like an old vintage fire truck parked on his on his in his driveway. He has no idea what that's doing there. Uh, the next night he's out with a client at a baseball game, entertaining the client. 
he disappears to go get hot dogs. Next thing you know, he ends up in center field and he makes the game saving catch mm-hmm. and all these things are happening and he has no idea. And then at the end of the first act, there's a knock at the door and he opens it up and oh my gosh, it's his grandfather who died when he was like 12 years old. Oh wow! And his grandfather was his best friend. As I said, loosely based on my thing. And that's when he figures out what's going on. Oh my gosh, grandpa, you died when I was that, but I wish you would come back and here you are and all these other things. And so they, they have, you know, a nice fun time and more wishes happen. And he's got one wish left and he can't figure out what it is. And it flashes back to one of his birthday parties and him and all his friends are around the table and him and his brother are fighting like crazy just fight and fight and fight. And the mother all frustrated comes out with a cake lit candles and says, Chaz, just blow out your damn candles and make a wish. And he looks at his brother, looks down at the cake, blows out the candles. And then it cuts back to the present. Oh my gosh. He remembered his last wish. He wished his brother was dead. Oh, so now him and his grandfather have to undo the wish. And the way they do it is they have to tell somebody redo the birthday get all the same kids there who are now in their thirties and, you know, redo the party and save his brother's life. Yada, yada, yada. Anyway, that was basically the story. That was the first thing I ever wrote. Oh, and uh, that was the beginning of my career. I, I I'm sorry that I went on a long winded response. I haven't told that story in, in forever, but that was the movie that started my, my writing career movie never got made. It was in development forever. That's a whole other story development. I mean, you know, you can with with TV, the great thing about TV is you write an episode of a TV show within two weeks, you're shooting it. It's on the air six weeks later. Right. Uh, You know, there are so many movies that you write and it can go from studio to studio to studio, sometimes never get made, sometimes get made three years later. It's a much different thing. But anyway, that it's called development like, hell for major, a reason. Exactly. It truly, truly is. And yeah. my best advice to anybody out there, when you enter through the doors of develop, of development, know it can be hell. Yeah. And, you know, check your expectations at the door and anything good that happens, you know, be wonderfully surprised and grateful. Yeah. But uh, that experience led to a couple more assignments and then I got an agent. And then uh, my first TV job was a show called Good Advice, which uh, starred Shelley Long mm-hmm. and uh, Treat Williams. It was a half-hour sitcom on CBS. I, I, <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't tell a quick story about that, but I will make it much shorter than the Ten Wishes story, I uh-huh. promise. Um, but um, so I had written a spec Seinfeld, and I had a friend who was a, an exec at uh, – Sony TriStar, and uh, they had a showrunner there named Danny Jacobson, mm-hmm. and he had two new shows, two new shows that both got picked up, and uh, they liked my script a lot, and I had a partner at the time, uh, Howard Busgang, we used to write together, and, and we came in, and we met Danny, and he handed us two VHS tapes, because this is a long time ago. <laughs> And he says, go watch these two pilots, whichever one you want, you guys have the job. And we watched the two shows and we're both like, this is a no brainer. I mean, good advice. Shelly Long coming off of Cheers. 
sure. Treat Williams, a great actor, such a fun concept. She plays a therapist dealing with broken marriages. He plays a divorce attorney. They're attracted to each other, but they despise each other. It's Sam and Diane from Cheers all over again. That's the show we want to do. And what you was sure? the other yes. one? <laughs> the show we said no to is a little show because how is it going to work? A whiny Jew and a cute shiksa. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to watch that. So we said no to Mad About You. Oh, goodness. Which has been rebooted <laughs> and is, is yeah. on as we speak. Yep. So, yeah. um, you know, that... Uh, you make decisions and, you know, of course, the agents are always going to give you the right advice. Uh, <laughs> they, they said uh, they said the same, you know, take good advice. Right. Um, but anyway, and then uh, the year after that uh, it was Boy Meets World, which really changed my career in that I really off of Boy Meets World. It was during that time that I realized I've always loved kids. I couldn't wait to get married and have a family. And I just really, it wasn't about writing a script and getting paid for it and seeing it on TV. It wasn't about that. It was that I enjoyed affecting young people's lives. I enjoyed working with the young cast. It became my passion. And then, you know, that was one of the reasons why Howard and I broke up. He's like, I want to do adult edgy stuff and blah, 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 blah. And I go, but, you know, this is great. It's a steady paycheck. The show ran for seven years. And even during it, we used to get into fights and we actually made a decision, which I regret to this day. We were running Boy Meets World in the middle seasons and, and Michael Jacobs was off. He had two other shows on the air at the time. He had a show called You Wish. And he had a show called Misery Loves Company. Two mm -hmm. really interesting. Misery Loves Company was great. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so we're running Boy Meets World and everything is fantastic. And Howard's like, I want to do adult. I want to do adult. And then our agents happened to call us around the same time. CBS just signed a new deal, a huge deal with a huge guarantee for what they thought was going to be the next big comedy star and his name was Tom Selleck oh. because Tom although you wouldn't think funny funny he was just coming off of Friends where he played Monica's older boyfriend mm. so we thought you know wow I mean they're I mean it's got Tom Selleck and he just did the Friends thing and uh, Ed Asner in the show Penelope Ann Miller David Crumholtz just an incredible cast. So we left Boy Meets World uh, towards the end of season five to go do this adult show and think it would change our, our careers. And it was it was a train wreck. <laughs> it was just an absolute train wreck. They uh, they just I think it got canceled halfway through the run. And Tom Tom, who's you know a real big star, he mm -hmm. was very insecure filming in front of a live studio audience. Ah. So he was never comfortable. And it just, I mean, it was one of those things that I was to, and he was Tom Selleck. I mean, he was freaking Tom Selleck, right. like Mr. Handsome, bushy mustache guy. And I remember this too, right before I started the gig, um, 
me and Kristen, who I was married to at the time, we were back east to just enjoy Thanksgiving and, you know, chill out before I went back to work. And she used to, you know, pick my stuff and buy my clothes and stuff. Now that I'm single, I just wear ripped jeans, Converse with no laces and a hoodie, (laughs) uh, which is, you know, uh, so I'm a 50 something year old dude dressing like a 17 year old, but that's what happened when she left me. I, I don't know how to buy clothes, but anyway, she (laughs) bought me this really awesome. No, it was like such a gore. I still have the coat, a long wool cashmere uh, cashmere armani coat navy blue it's so dope it's really really cool and i'm back in la and it's first day at the offices and i just walk in and i'm all proudly wearing my new coat and as i get to my office my assistant says oh Selleck is uh down the hall he's there he wants to meet everybody and i go great and i don't take my coat off And I march in, still feeling, I mean, I know I don't look like Tom Selleck, but damn, I look good in this coat. And I'm standing there in my coat, my big smile, no bushy mustache, but (laughs) but looking looking good. And Selleck walks out of an office, walks up to me. He's wearing the exact same coat. (laughs) And, And this man gave me a look, no words. He gave me a look where the intent, had he spoken, would have been lose the coat. Don't even think about ever wearing it here again. I got that <laughs> message from him and I did not wear that coat anywhere near the Warner brothers studio ever again. Uh, um, but after that, you know, that after that experience, you know, as I said, I, I kind of regretted leaving boy meets world and um, you know, I went right back to the family world. I, I, I ran a, a show called so little time with the Olsons Mm-hmm. Um, they were about 16 at the time. A lot of stories for the book. Let me tell you something. Uh, I have a, a lot of stories. Um, it was it was a great experience. You know, it, when I I took over the show year two, and you had these two girls, 16 years old, who had grown up in front of the camera, and but it was all about being cute and wearing cute outfits. And and when I sat down with them, I said. Ashley, Mary Kate, I said, I want to challenge you to both as actors. I believe you have not shown anywhere near your potential. And my goal is to challenge you, write scenes that challenge you. We'll have boyfriends and breakups and fights with your dad and mom and, and, you know, feeling isolated. And I want to really, really hit the emotions of a young 16 year old's life and you guys are going to pull it off. And I said, if I do my job and you do yours and we work together in this, you will be nominated for an Emmy. And they looked at me like, okay, we've heard that or not heard that, but come on, we're the Olsons. I mean, come on. And I said, I'm telling you it's going to happen. And so we start doing the show and I challenge them and Mary Kate has a boyfriend in it and she breaks up and there were some really, really good scenes. And months later, oh my gosh, it happened in the trades. We read Mary Kate was nominated for an Emmy best performance by, you know, in children's programming daytime. And, um, they were so well. They they were a little upset at first because they didn't understand why only one of them. I mean, they're the Olsen twins. How did sure. they not both get nominated? Right, right. But anyway, 
got nominated. And then months later, the Emmys and uh, she lost. She didn't win the Emmy, but here's the kicker. She lost to Elmo. (laughs) (laughs) She lost the Emmy. Can you imagine you're a a real life person and you lose to a red sock? (laughs) And, uh, and, And so I felt good that I delivered on my promise of an Emmy nomination. I had no way to see the future that she would be wow. up against Elmo. And let's face it, you, you know, I, I don't, I don't think Meryl Streep has beaten Elmo. I mean, right. I mean, he's Elmo. You? Yeah. How could you? You can't. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, but you know, that was, uh, that was awesome. I, I enjoyed it. And then I continued, uh, as you know, you know, to, to do family programming and, you know, still doing it to this day. I just love it. And I love, like I said, working with young young people, whether it's, you know, known commodities like, you know, uh, Mary Kay Nashley, or it's completely unknown people that, you know, you work with and you help and they're amazing and talented and they have a great career. Mm-hmm. It's all fun. It's, it's, it's so worthwhile. And the great thing too, Kevin is, and here's what's so interesting. You know, when we did Boy Meets World, we knew we were a hit. Okay, we were on Friday nights and seen between 18 and 20 million people. I mean, nobody, obviously, everything's changed now. Nobody gets those kind of numbers. But we knew we were successful, and we did over 140 episodes, but there was no social media. So, you know, mail, fan mail would come in and, you know, go right to, like, the studio security, and they would sort out all the letters from prison for Topanga and throw those away, (laughs) (laughs) you know. It was just, it was, it was just very different. And then when we did Girl Meets World, uh, I think we started it in two thirteen or two fourteen, something like mm-hmm. that. Well, all of a sudden, we're accessible online, and all the fans, the old Boy Meets World fans, are now reaching out to us on social media, saying, "Oh my gosh, uh, you know, I had a really rough time at home, and that episode where Sean was hiding out the girl who was being abused at home." helped me get through and it was it gave me the courage to go to the police or whatever whatever and you're just getting all this feedback about boy meets world from all those years ago and you're sitting there and you're able to go oh my gosh the legacy that we've left behind you know michael jacobs who is one of the most prolific uh creators in 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 family television he's got like 18 shows he's created, but then, and he always taught me this. He said, anybody, anybody can make somebody laugh. You know, you can do a low form of humor. You can just have a good joke. You can have a physical comedy, whatever. He says, the trick is to make an audience feel right. And if you make an audience feel, they will come back week after week after week. If there is an emotional connection between them and the characters and the world you've created, then you've got an audience. And so, you know, I've continued to always strive to do that in anything I write. Where's that emotional connection? Right. Well, and you mentioned how social media has sort of changed in terms of from when you did Boy Meets World and, you know, earlier where there really wasn't that uh, and you made, you know, 
shows, you made content and put it out there and, you know, fan mail would come through and you wouldn't necessarily see most of it to now where you can get a direct connection with those that are watching your shows and and hearing the impact on individuals. But I want to know how else has the industry has television changed in the time you've been doing it? There's certainly because of all the streaming networks, right? There is a far greater need for content and you have all these different platforms now, some of which don't have to answer to an advertiser. Mm-hmm. So they can do what they want. They can really push the envelope. So certainly there are way more out-of-the-box ideas, mm-hmm. things that never would have saw the light of day 10 years ago. It would have been impossible. So it's become a really enriched landscape for storytellers that you can tell stories now that maybe were tucked away in a drawer for a long time that you couldn't necessarily ever take out of that drawer before. So, so certainly that's one way Uh, there's, there's a lot more freedom. Um, There's fewer, you know, uh, people down the, creative development chain or the current execs there's there's far fewer uh chefs in the mix i mean you know back in the day see you know before the explosion of all the added networks and platforms if there were you know five six outlets and then you know eventually cable and all that but you really felt unless you were Aaron Sorkin or J.J. Abrams or, you know, the, the huge, huge, huge names in TV, you felt suffocated in a lot of ways and that there was so many people to answer to, so many notes, so many rewrites. There was just so much creative interference from people that really, you're like sitting here going, I've been writing for 15, 20, whatever it is, amount of years, so wait, so before I decide about this idea, so tell me again about your four years of business school at Wharton, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's like, so, you know, literally for so many years, there was a real sense of, you know, being handcuffed um, and the people that were dictating what you got to put out there weren't creative souls. They, they had business backgrounds or law degrees or whatever. Again, not to say that they're not capable of good ideas. Everybody's capable of a good idea. Everybody. I mean, we're all, you know, cut from, you know, various DNAs, but we're all humans and we all have brains and we all have ideas and certainly everybody has. But as far as, you know, the day in day out of, of writing series TV, Back then, I think there was far less creativity. And clearly now you can watch a show like Santa Clarita Diet, which is just a fun, dark romp, or a show like Atypical, which is one of my favorite shows ever, which is Michael Rappaport and Jennifer Jason Lee as the right. parents of a highly autistic child. Right. And so now there's just room for everything. Shit's Creek never would have made it on TV 10 years ago. Right. It's one of the funniest shows out there. You know, 
written by and starring, you know, my idols, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy and, you know, great, Daniel man. Levy, Eugene's son and Sarah. And, and, you know, you find me a show here where you show up and go, here's the show, my son, my daughter, they're all going to be in it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. And so, you know, it was, and we're going to name it Shit's Creek, right? And we're going to call it Shit's Creek. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, it was originally sold to CBC. Yeah. And then Pop TV bought it. You're going to tell me there's not an executive at any other network that wouldn't kill to have a show like that? Yeah. But, but they were all, you know, people back in the day were afraid to, you know, it's the same as, it's no different than life. I mean, it's, you know, how most, Kids are raised in their own homes, you know, live within the box. If you leave the box, if you think outside of the box, you're, that's, that's not how I raised my kids. That's not how I was raised. But I know, you know, you, you, you know how you know that that exists in our world. You just pick up the phone and call customer service at Bed Bath & Beyond. You know, <laughs> they will not deep, you know, well, there was a giant hole in my sheet. I know, but it's been 91 days. And you know, our rule is 90 days. I understand, but I didn't open the sheets till today. And there's a giant hole. There's no middle of the sheet. I'm right. sorry. It's 91 days. Can you stop saying that? If you say 91 days one more time, <laughs> I'm going to rip my head off. 91 days. Ah! So that, and that's how TV was to a large degree. It right. was, you know, stay inside the box. And now, oh my gosh. I mean, there's just so much great content, you know, the Ozarks and, and, um, you know, as I said, atypical, I think is genius. I, you know, when I watch atypical, I feel it's one of the few shows that I feel is not written. It's just not written. It just feels like I'm just sitting in the room with these people and they're going through their life. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's an amazing time to be a storyteller, uh, both in film and TV. It's just, you know, it's more competitive, Yeah, but, you know, you can, you can go to all these different places and you can tell that story that you otherwise would have been shamed if you pitched 10, 15 years ago. They would have called your agent and go, yeah, thanks. We don't want to see Mark again. Right. So even in my world, even in my world, which is the family world, you know, the shows that I'm out there pitching and developing are very different and, and, and shows that, you know, I probably couldn't have done 10, 15 years ago. Right. Speaking of storytellers. You're, I can tell just from speaking with you for, you know, 30 minutes or so uh, of this podcast, I can tell from your pitch of 10 wishes, which reminded me of big immediately. And of course, and, and you know, the stories you've been telling, you're a very gifted storyteller, not just as a writer, because I think that, you know, in terms of like a verbal presence, you know, a storyteller, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but not every writer is a great storyteller in person. Um, right. But you're very good at it. Uh, so Thank you. I, so I wanted to see, uh, since you are so good at it, do you have any advice or tips on pitching for those writers out there who may not be as as good at it? You know, both for pilots, like you're pitching 10 wishes to producers or executives, or if you're right. like on one of your shows, you know, and, and you're pitching ideas to a showrunner or the writing staff, uh, what sort of advice or tips would you have for those writers out there? So that's a great question, Kevin. So I, I think my answer is going to 
contain bits and pieces of things I've already said. Okay. So, so when you're in a room pitching, again, it's the same thing as when you're putting a show together that you want an audience to see. There needs to be a connection. Mm -hmm. So your immediate audience are those three or four executives in the room, and you want to make them feel connected to the material. Um, the best way to do that is to make sure you're personalizing your pitch. Um, you know, if it's a truly honest telling of something from your life, if you're doing a show about you, your parents got divorced and then your mom remarried and you lived and then they got divorced and then you went to it. She had five marriages. And the only common thing in all those marriages was me. I was beginning to think it was me. And so if that's the concept, I'm just making this up off the top of my head. But if you're a child that's been through five divorces and you blame yourself and you're telling, I want to do a story about this, you're making it very personal and you're telling it from a strong point of view and a personal point of view. So, right. you know, you really, really want to make your listener um, feel and, and feel that there's an emotional resonance to the story. And then the other keys, I mean, there are other keys you want, you know, pitching the TV show, you must make them see that there's three, four years worth of stories to tell mm. um, that it's not, you know, a one and done type thing. And, you know, it's really interesting too. Mm -hmm. again, how everything has changed. So, one of the things Netflix was one of the first to do this. I remember pitching them four or five years ago and they're like, so what are your four seasons? And I'm like, what, <laughs> where do you see the, the, the show, you know, in, in four years? What? Well, like, <laughs> you know, give me your arc every, my arc every year. And I went back to my agent and I said, this is such bullshit. And here's why this is just me. This is how I feel. This is what I believe. And yes, I'm not a rebel and I'm going to go along with stuff and I do it what they want now. But here's the reality. Do you think any long running show that I was ever a part of, we knew exactly what season three was going to look like in season one. Right? No, it's impossible. So if I go in there and I say, well, you know, season two, <laughs> season two is all about, you know, Jacqueline's relationship with, with Ted is season two. Uh, episode three, Jacqueline's horrible. Ted's awful. We write them both out of the show and we move on. Right, right. The point is, it's, it's, there's no way we know. We're not novelists. We're not, you know, writing a book. And, and so they talk about, you know, they, they want the Bible. They want the Bible. First of all, the Writers Guild says, yeah, they want the Bible. Let them pay for it. Right. The Bible is something in, 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 in the Guild thing. It's, you get paid for it. But all the, you know, the, the, everybody wants to hear the whole thing. And I'm like, I, like it's, I, I do it. I do it briefly. But I meet all these young writers and I do a lot of mentoring. And they're all like, you know, do I need a Bible? And I go, I go look, I don't want to get you in trouble. People want it. But, and I give them, you know, my point of view, which is like, there's no, like, I just, you know, like I said, we're talking Shit's Creek. I've been binging that. And, you know, there's no way they knew what they were doing in season three before they even shot the pilot. There's right. no way. So, but they, they do want it. They also now the big thing are pitch decks. And I got swept up in that. I mean, I remember, you know, at some point in my career, 
I would just walk into CBS and go, uh, I want to do a show about a family who runs a restaurant and the kids are blah, 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 blah. blah. Okay, go write it. Let us see an outline. Like that was the extent of, you know, I mean, I'm being, you know, a, a, a little hyperbolic here. It wasn't right. quite like that, but the, but now it really is because it's so competitive and there's so many, it really is a dog and pony thing. And I really, you know, I pay somebody to put together a pitch deck for me with, with pictures and mood boards and music pages and this and that and the next thing. And, uh, you know, that's all part of the pitching process now in TV. It's uh, the more they have. And then, you know, it's funny, too, with, 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 with some of the places you go in and you do this incredible pitch with an incredible pitch deck. And you've printed it out into a, a lookbook or a leave behinds for when you leave, you leave it with them. And ultimately, one of the six or seven executives will turn and say, you have a script? And it's like, how much do you want for free? <laughs> Like, in fact, we've shot three seasons. Here you go. I mean, <laughs> right. like, it's 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 really you know it's it's different now. But by the same token, you know, you do it. I mean, that's the dance you're invited to, and so you gotta play by those rules. Right. Right. So I try. I try. That's 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 great to know. And. Before you were a writer, you mentioned some acting work that you had done in like Meatballs Three, and I know I saw on your your uh, IMDb that you were at Hill Street Blues and you know other things. And I always like to ask actors turned writers that if working and performing as an actor, you know, has sort of affected your writing, and if so, how? So my honest answer to that it has not affected my writing, but what it has affected profoundly is how I treat talent on a set, how I treat talent in an audition situation. I've, um, I'll, I'll be in a room with three or four other producers and somebody will come in and be sh- sh- shaking, 12, 13, 11 years old, doesn't matter. Just be shaking and be horrible, horrible. And the casting director will immediately go, well, thank I go, hang on, hang on. And all the other producers look at me going, Blutman, what are you doing? What are you doing? This was horrible. We're not going to cast. And I knew I wasn't going to cast them. But my job, especially working with young people, is to elevate them, lift them up, make them feel good. So I would stop and I would say, hey, how's your day been today? And just small talk. What's going on? How was school? Do you skateboard? Yeah. And I would talk to them for two minutes and relax them a bit. I said, let's do the scene again, but here's what I want. Here's what I want. Cause you really did good, but you know, I think here's where it needs to be. See if you can do this, whatever. And everyone's, everyone's all looking at their watches and they're all about, we're on a tight schedule. And, and I look at it very different. I look at it. Writing and producing television is the greatest blessing outside of my two kids that have, that has ever been put upon me and if i'm an ass to an actor that comes in then i don't deserve anything that's come my way and so having been on that other side and having gone to auditions where i've tanked and they couldn't wait to get me out of the room fast enough or just knowing how nerve-wracking it could be 
it's made me that kind of producer that I, you know, and listen, I'm not perfect. And I'm sure there's been auditions where, you know, somebody left feeling horrible. I can't lift the entire world up, but I can do my best to make every experience for a young actor seem positive. So that's, you know, that's kind of where that's helped me the most. A number of writers have said to me is it's like, if you have a choice between jobs, Always pick the one where the sh- you, you know the showrunner loves their kids. Because, one, they're going to be out the <laughs> yeah. door as quickly as possible. They're not going to keep you there till you know, 11 or midnight, going on over random drafts of this or that, sitting in your office. Yeah. And they're probably going to be decent human beings. So if you have a choice yeah, between, between jobs, go to the one with the showrunner where you know they love their kids. Like right. You go to their office, there's pictures of their yeah. family and their kids. That's the one you want to work for. And you've just That's sort of the proven one you, that. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely don't want to, you know, submit your – wait, that – how many marriages? They're on their fifth marriage? <laughs> I don't want to work for him or her. Um, uh, no, and, and, and by the way, you know, Kevin, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's TV, and the best shows on TV that are run by the best showrunners – also have the best hours. The show I just did for Apple, Ghostwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, uh, boss was a, a guy I've known for many years named Andrew Ornstein, mm-hmm. who is amazing. He used to do Malcolm in the Middle, Third Rock, and uh, Great show. Uh, he did Just Add Magic on Amazon. And uh, so we were doing Ghostwriter. And the show is really, really good. People love it. In fact, uh, one of our directors, Luke Matheny, just got nominated for DGA Award. Great show. He's a dad. He's got two kids. Here was our day every day. And we did 26 episodes, 26 episodes, and we were only six writers. Wow. Okay. Show up at 10 o'clock. At 12.15, we walked to one of the restaurants in the area. We're back in the office at about 1.45. We write till 3.15, 3.30, then we walk again for coffee, one of three coffee places near the office. We're back in the room at 4 o'clock. We work till anywhere between 6 and 6.30. Done. That was every day. We did 26 episodes of a terrific show. Wow. So all the shows I was on that was there till 3 in the morning, 2 in the morning, there was never a need for it. And, and any show... I ran, it was the same thing, you know, it's, it's just TV. And then we got to the point also, we were, you know, all a little older. And if we did have a big rewrite for whatever reason, I, we all decided it was better to come in at, you know, six thirty seven in the morning and tackle it. Then right. no, very few people are creating gold between the hours of one and four. AM. <laughs> right. No truer it's, words have ever been spoken. I would say so. <laughs> Um, and finally, you have obviously done uh, a tremendous amount of TV series in the sort of family uh, genre, the family-friendly genre on you know everything from Boy Meets World to Ghostwriter Now. What should writers consider when writing a script that needs to be family-friendly? Like if they're entering that space, you know, what are things they really need to be especially cognizant of? Like do this and make sure you don't do this. Um, you know, write their own truth, you know, bring their own experiences, their own truth to the stories. 
Um, one of the most fulfilling episodes of television I ever got to do on Girl Meets World. Uh, I think we were season two, probably season two. And I have two boys, Luke and Liam, who are now 19 and 21. Mm. And Liam, my oldest, was you know roughly 17 at the time. And pretty late in age for the diagnosis to come, but uh, he was uh, diagnosed on the spectrum, borderline Asperger, um, you know, has his stuff and, you know, he's awesome and successful and he writes and writes sports and does very well, but he's got his things, which made him on the spectrum. And it was a big blow as parents and my ex handled it much better than me. I was typical macho dude. Ah, he's just, it, all boys are on the spectrum. Right. Look at that. Ask any pediatrician. They'll tell you boys are all on the spectrum. And it was causing stress. And, uh, I went to, uh, to Michael and I said, I want to write about Asperger. Let's do an episode about Asperger. And he was like, no. And I, said, eh. and I said, no, 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 it's important. It's really important to me. I'm going through it now as a father and we'll hit the parents' point of view of how it affects, you know, the dad reacts one way, the mom a different way and the friends. And we'll, we'll really elevate the friends here who support him and blah, 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 blah. And we did it. And we, I had to work with consultants and all that. And half the time, the network consultants about autism are telling me stuff like, no, that's not, I go, no, it is because I'm living it. Right. But in any event, they were, they were great. They were very helpful. And the episode got nominated for a Writers Guild Award. And um, it was the most fulfilling thing ever because it was so cathartic for me to be able to write an episode about the truth I was living. Right. So in answer to your question, even though it's family genre, you know, just write, write your own stories, write your own truth, your own experiences. Don't sit there and go, you know, be really cool. If they go to a concert, cause we haven't seen the concert show in what about 10 minutes. No, write something that when you're going around the table in the writer's room, and everybody's pitching various things. When it comes to you, you're pitching a story from your life that once again connects, is compelling, captivates the rest of the room. Somebody may come up to you and put an arm around you and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe you went through that. But that's, you know, so just because, I, I guess, am I answering your question? Like just because it's family right. doesn't mean it can't be different and outside of the box and important. I mean, I get what you're saying. And it's uh, obviously great writing is great writing, no matter the genre. Mine was slightly more practical in the sense of, you know, like, for example, the the big outrage, because I don't remember which product it was, but I guess they had used damn the word damn D-A-M-N in their advertising. And there was like this big outrage over them using it. I can't. I'm trying to think of the brand that used it in their commercial or something like that. And it was a big deal. So my, right. my thought was just more practical in a sense of like, if you have do a topic about, you know, something that's, I mean, I, I get doing what's personal, but if, is there anything that, you know, a writer who is making their first attempt at writing something family friendly, maybe they have a personal story you know, subtle things like don't use the word damn, or, you know, like I know that can 30 oh, rock, there well, was a like running joke of don't use these words. Cause you will, you know, the, yeah. 
you know, you'll get uh, called out by the yeah. network or something like that. You know, more practical. I mean, going advice, all the way back, yeah, all the way back to George Carlin's right. words you can't say on TV. Right, right, right. You know, I mean, honestly, if it's a spec script we're talking about that isn't going to get shot, right? You know, obviously, if you're writing a spec, you know, script that's targeting. 12 to 14 year olds, you're not going to have the F word all over the place. Sure. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, when we shoot a script, the network has a standards and practices, um, department, which each draft, they send us their notes and they're the ones that govern. You can't say this or can, and then ultimately as a showrunner, you're in a negotiation. Well, can we say two dams if I lose the shit? <laughs> right. I mean, you just, you know, so it becomes that, but, but, but listen, you know, it's hard to give specific advice on that because I think the writer's intelligent, you know, they're going to know, um, you know, but again, here's, you know, this will answer your question a little better, Kevin. If you're writing a spec, a single camera film show that you see as a a Netflix show, like on my block or something like that, then you're, you know, you have more freedom in language. Um, if you're handing in something to Nickelodeon, I would not suggest, you know, dropping F bombs and, you know, having the 12 year old lead, um, you know, the two 12 year old leads lose their virginity in the back seat of the school bus. I would probably say not a good idea. Um, I, I, I think anybody that's writing, you've got to be a fairly intelligent person to be a writer in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think everybody can kind of police themselves. Sure. They'll know. Like I said, it was just more of a practical thing in terms of, uh, like, for example, uh, you know, speaking to um, writers of comic books, the, you know, the, the practical aspect of it is, you know, a, a writer told me who writes for animation now, uh, and you know, describing the difference between comic books and animation was saying, you know, like before he would write in one comic book panel, you know, the character runs through this door and throws a rock and, you know, and, and then leaps out of the way of the gunshot or something like that. And the artist would go, no, that has to be multiple panels. You can't tell that story, what you just told me, in one... I can't draw that action as one continuous action in one panel. That has to be, like, four panels right. on a page. Whereas in animation, right. you just write the whole thing, and, you know, the animators will animate that. Um, so, you know, stylistically, it just different based on the medium. So I was just curious if there was, you know, specific yeah, things that I, I, you noticed from writing yeah. different genres that was. Exactly. And, and, you know, obviously there's a, there's a bit of a difference right away in tone between a multi-cam show and a single cam. Show. Sure. Well, absolutely. In terms of um, half hour stuff, you yeah. know, right. So, but, um, you know, I think my advice, if you write in a spec script, don't be afraid to push it. Right. You know, because chances are, I mean, I'm sure you've had other writers, you know, share this, when somebody's reading you, mm-hmm. you get about you get about five pages to make an impression. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, you know, and I can generally tell, you know, pretty quickly if you know it's somebody I want to meet or not. So, I, I think again, in such a highly competitive field as as, as television and film writing is, you know, just <laughs> win them over. Worry about the rules later. Right. Yeah, that's good advice. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Mark. I really appreciate it. It was uh, absolutely my pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, and Mark's Twitter. Be sure to follow Mark on Twitter. It's at Blutman Mark, B-L-U-T-M-A-N, Mark, M-A-R-K. 
Um, and do you have any other social media that you want to? Uh, Instagram is Mark Blutman. It's the other way. Okay. It was my idea of this way. Nobody will think I'm the same person. <laughs> well, there you go. And, uh, and yeah, so those are, those are the two I'm generally uh, navigating and, and to everybody out there on social that, you know, writes us and it, we love to hear it when you write and say, Hey, I sat down with my kids and watched Ghost Rider and they loved it. I mean, we really appreciate that kind of love. So don't shy away from it. Absolutely. So be sure to tweet at uh, Blutman Mark uh, or, or send, me a send your photo to at Mark Blutman. <laughs> there you go. Two different people. Absolutely. Uh, and thank you guys for listening. We do this podcast to help you writers in your journey. So we appreciate you tuning in as always. Thanks again, Mark. And, My pleasure. And to all you writers, keep writing and we'll see you next time. <laughs>